Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm one of our reporters, Ryan, and today I'm joined with CEO of Offshore Energies UK, Dave Whitehouse. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing very well indeed, uh, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. The pleasure is all ours. And t- this week has been a busy old week in the, the news cycle for the energy sector, mainly with Keir Starmer's Labour Party speaking about there'd be no new oil and gas licences in the North Sea if we were to get a Labour government post the next general election. I'm sure like you've been chatting about this quite a lot this week, but let's chat about maybe the broader overviews of what that means and then we can dive into the minutiae of it. That sounds good. That sounds good. So it's been a very interesting week um, uh, uh, listening to what we see as draft proposals or draft thoughts that came out over the weekend uh, from the Labour Party. And I think I think certainly from, from my perspective, I think uh, it's not clear what Labour's position actually is. And I think one of the commitments that Keir Starmer quite rightly has made to the sector, that before policy decisions are are truly baked in, there will be engagement with the uh, with the sector. So so I'm fully expecting the Labour Party to, to reach out and, and to be honest, I think they already are to come and properly engage with the sector to discuss the uh, the, the future. But if, if I could say though, Ryan, I think there is a concern that, um, that the news we read about, I think it does undermine um, investment in the sector. I think we're already reeling from the energy profits levy, which I think as we've uh, said on a number of occasions, we're seeing over 90% of the oil and gas operators are, are cutting back on on investment in, in the North Sea. And the reason why that's a, a real concern is up and down the country, up and down the UK, we employ over 200,000 people. And I think people reading about these things and actually not having the clarity on what is really happening, I think that's unfair on those people. I, I, I think one of the things that's very clear to me that this journey to net zero has to be about people and with people. And I think uh, I think... Not releasing the detail, not properly engaging with the sector, I don't think is the, is, is the, is the right approach. And, it, and if you look a, a bit further ahead, then, then indeed, if there truly were no additional licenses, that investment was um, deferred, delayed, investment was stopped, then the implications are huge. Um, today in the UK, 75% of our energy is produced through oil and gas, 75%. And of that, around about half we produce domestically. So anything that we do that undermines our domestic production, all that means is we have to import it from somewhere else. So that means we're importing it from other countries who may not have the same commitment that we do to the energy transition. So I think that is, that's wrong. So we're taking those imports and we export our jobs. We export the jobs, the very people that we need for a, for a successful energy transition. We undermine their jobs. That just feels wrong. And particularly at a time when the UK economy has been struggling. We need to do everything we can, not only to deliver on those climate goals, but ensure we have a strong economy. Undermining that investment, focusing on importing oil and gas instead of using our own domestic skills, that just makes the country poorer. So for me, really important topic, really important issue. Disappointed that we haven't had the meaningful engagement yet with Labour, but, um, but I'm confident it will come. We need to do the right thing. Domestic oil and gas, important for our jobs, important for our energy security, and fundamentally, it supports the very people and the very companies that we need for a successful energy transition. Let's uh, let's touch on that jobs piece. You know, obviously, it impacts jobs in the sense that if there isn't the prospect in new developments, there's less people coming into the sector. But 
maybe counterintuitively, it kind of impacts the energy transition, right? The people working in the sector at the moment are the people that are looking to move into the, the these renewable sectors post, say, 2045, 2050. How does that sort of play into things? For me, it's not counterintuitive at all. I think uh, I think more and more um, people need to recognize that energy is a fully integrated part of the, the economy. There is no simple choice between oil and gas on one hand and renewable energy on the other. It's all of the same continuum. So, so the people and the services, the, the equipment, the pipe play, all of the good stuff that we need for the energy transition is exactly the same people and equipment that we need for, uh, for oil and gas. So if you undermine the oil and gas sector, you undermine that, uh, that energy transition. And, and if I could say, Ryan, one of the things that is causing us real concern is that we are already seeing assets leaving the UK. So we're seeing companies choosing not to invest in the UK. And what that, what that means is profits that companies need to make so that they can invest in the transition, that is disappearing. And the people and equipment that we need for the energy transition, not only is it not there now for our oil and gas needs, but it won't be there in the future when we start talking about floating offshore wind, when we start talking about hydrogen and we start talking about carbon storage as, as, as some of the energies of the future. So very concerning. And I suppose when we look at the energy transition, you know, like the northeast of Scotland plays a, a major part in that. How does it affect the region specifically? I, I think it's huge. When you look, when you look for, for the region, I think we estimate that in total there's, there's 90,000 jobs associated with the oil and gas sector in, in the region. And one of the things that, again, I, th- I think needs to be clear, we, the, the, the sector is fully committed to the energy transition. We recognize that that transition is going to take a period of time. But one thing we mustn't do is undermine those communities. In the northeast of Scotland, somewhere I've now lived for, for 20 years, very much part and parcel of my home, I don't want to see it being undermined uh, by this. We need to get this right. And it just seems wrong that in a world where we are using 75% of our energy is from oil and gas in the UK, we recognize we're going to be using it for for, uh, decades to come during the the transition. Why would we choose to undermine our, our domestic oil and gas production? Why would we choose to undermine these communities? It doesn't make sense. And that's why, again, we would be very keen to talk, actually to talk to all politicians, to lay out the reasons about why oil and gas production is actually, it's the platform for a successful energy transition. So obviously, since the news broke on Sunday that this is potentially Labour's stance on oil and gas, we've had various other political parties sort of chime in to to criticise. Gillian Martin, energy minister, recently told Energy Voice that she she thinks that the, the policies may be tone deaf Despite recently having Hamza Youssef saying at the All Energy Conference in Glasgow, there would have to be very good reason before he could see a a justification for new oil in the North Sea. And his predecessor, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, had taken an even stronger stance than that. Does that impact how people look at maybe investing in the UK as well? So one of the things we've consistently said to all politicians is that words actually really do matter, is is what people say um, does matter. It does change the investment sentiment. So it's really important that all policymakers are very careful about how they speak about the, uh, the industry. And I must admit, we've been disappointed in the past. We've had headlines which undermine those 200,000 great people up and down the country. And, and because of thoughtless words, it causes investors. And actually, a lot of our overseas investors 
When they see the headlines, they talk to us here at OEUK and ask us what is happening. So those words really do, uh, really do matter. What people say, what shows up in the paper, what shows up in the press has a direct impact on, on investment in the, in the sector. And again, if I, could, if I could say, one of the things, though, that I think is, I find encouraging is actually, I think the sector has for a long time been very quiet. Uh, for 50 years, oil and gas has powered the, the UK the lives we lead, very much determined by what we have been doing in the last 50 years in terms of bringing energy um, to the UK. I think the sector has been very quiet in terms of what it is bringing. I think we have been too shy uh, to talk about the, the good work that, uh, that we do. I, I guess generally speaking, we're engineers and, and, and generally speaking, we like to just get on with doing things rather than talk about it. And I think in, in many ways, we have been too quiet. So so one of the things that encourages me is we are trying to be out there and talk more about the importance of the, the sector. We're absolutely committed to, to climate goals. I'm, you know, we're, we all have kids. We all want to leave a legacy where we leave the, where we leave the, the, the country, the area, but we leave the climate in, in great shape. So we're all committed on that path to net zero. But we really see that the oil and gas sector is fundamental to that. If we, if we use the skills that we have in this sector, it really is the platform to a successful transition. So we are trying to be out and talking more and engaging more. And I've been very pleased, actually, that, that we are seeing a change in tone from the Scottish government, which I think is exactly right. We're a key part of the economy. Actually, and it's not just the oil and gas sector. If you undermine the oil and gas sector, you also undermine Grangemouth. You, you undermine our steel production throughout the UK. You undermine glass production, cement production throughout, throughout the UK. So we've been very pleased to starting to hear, I think, a slightly different tone from the Scottish government, which we very much uh, appreciate. And we do recognize we need to continue to demonstrate we're doing the right thing. That, and, and again, as, as simple engineers, judge us by our actions, not by our words. So we'll say the right thing. But actually what we're doing is we are decarbonizing the production in the North Sea, 20% less emissions today than in, than in 2018. And a real commitment from the, from the industry that we will hit our net zero targets by 2045 and 2050. So, that, so the commitments there judge us by our actions. We have been very pleased to see this, see this support and, and hear more supportive words from various policymakers. Perfect. That's that's great to hear that we're getting that that two-way dialogue with the, with the government. I think if I if I could add to that, Ryan, I think, and again, it's a, it's a consistent theme that the oil and gas sector, and actually all of the energy sectors, um, when you when you look at us, when we are successful, it is because we roll our sleeves up and we work really well together. Delivering successful projects, delivering successful change always comes through working together, not through creating division. And one of the things that I think has dominated the discussion for too long is, is talk about division, oil and gas versus renewables. It's not. It's oil and gas and renewables. The more we collaborate, the more successful uh, we are. And actually, we set out to be the most collaborative sector in the in the UK. And we truly look to embrace working uh, across renewables uh, the organization that, that I work for, we already have a number of renewable organizations who are actually a part of our membership. Almost all of our supply chain are already not only working in the oil and gas sector, but are already branching into to the renewables. So again, for me, Ron, that, it's that key message. If we want to deliver a successful energy transition, which we do, the way we do that is by working collaboratively together. It's identifying the areas where we have common ground and building on that division is not the way forward when it comes to tackling huge issues like climate change. We're speaking about delivering 
projects, uh, not just renewables, and but oil and gas as well. And that kind of ties neatly into the next topic that I want to address while we have you here. And that is the the licensing round that is currently going on within the, the UK. When will we hear about the winners of the licensing round? And, you know, how does that tie into what we've been speaking about? So, so we'd expect to hear the the results of the licensing round uh, later on this year. So so we're expecting quarter three, we'll hear the outcome of the 33rd uh, licensing round. And the impact of that, actually, that licensing round very sensibly was focused on a lot of near field developments. So, so again, you know, we have declining oil and gas production. And what we're looking for in that licensing round is the opportunity to bring small fields um, back generally speaking, tiebacks into existing infrastructure, making the best of, of what we, we have. So getting that licensing round confirmed, actually having a good environment where people wish to invest, I think would be really positive for the UK. So so yes, uh, third quarter, that licensing round, we expect to hear it then. The other piece was last month actually hearing the outcome of the first carbon storage licensing round. And I think great news for the UK, quite frankly, wonderful opportunity for the, for, for the UK. I think Great news for um, our plans to deliver on climate change, our plans to to reduce the emissions for the for the UK. And quite frankly, if we get this right, great news for jobs up and down the country. This is certainly an area where the UK, West Scotland, we can absolutely be world leaders. We have not only the geology in carbon storage, but we have the people and the infrastructure to make this a real success, not only dealing with the UK's emissions, but actually providing a service to other countries as well. Touching on carbon capture and storage. You know, the UK government have goals uh, to decarbonize the power system by 2035. That clearly ties into the UK's gas field power plants and they require CCS to some extent. Given the slow pace of the rollout of carbon capture and storage and maybe disappointments the the sector has had in the past. Do you believe that we can reach those targets by 2035? So I think, Ryan, if we, if we carry on the path that we're on, then the short answer is no. If we carry on the path that we're on, then we will not decarbonize uh, the UK's electricity grid. It, it simply won't happen. And I think, I mean, I say that, but I think you'll also find the, Cli- the Committee on Climate Change their report also says the same thing, that we're not going to meet it. However, the opportunity still lies ahead. And I, and I think, again, from a sector point of view, and actually from, a, from an energy transition point of view, there's a real call for action here. It can be done, but now we need more rapid action. And so when you look at the, the decarbonizing our electricity, I think it is very clear carbon, carbon storage is going to play a key part. You know, we were pleased to hear some of the announcements in the budget, which I think unlocks some of the, some of the projects that we, we need. We're pleased to hear now that the second track of carbon storage projects, including the truly important ACORN project in the northeast of Scotland, um, is is under consideration as part of, of track two. But actually, we need to see more of this. So track one, track two, that is good. Overall, there's something in the region of 100 storage sites required for to meet the, the UK's ambitions. We need to see that longer term that longer term plan. So I do think ministers and I think policymakers across all the political parties are beginning to realise just how important carbon storage could be, how vital it could be, uh, not just for our climate goals, but also for our economy. And part of the drive here at OEUK is actually to turn that sentiment into real action. So starting to see track two being announced, track three, four, etc. And 
finding a way that we're getting final investment decisions on the first tranche of carbon storage projects. So as a, as a country, we have a goal to deliver 30 million uh, tons of storage by the end of this decade, 50 million by the middle of the next, uh, the next decade. And those targets are still achievable, but they do need urgent action. And um, I think engagement from OEUK and others, I think, is really key to that. And I do think policymakers are listening and, and we are hopeful of seeing movement and seeing pace injected into these scenarios if we don't if you don't mind i'd like to tie back to what we're uh, what we were speaking about earlier no pun intended with tie back there um to oil and gas in the north sea and i guess we can't really speak about that topic without tackling rosebank right and i i just want to ask you how essential is rosebank to the uk's energy security I think Rosebank is important to the UK for a whole variety of reasons. And if I could, let me, let me talk in general about the need for, for um, additional developments. The UK's oil and gas production is falling. It's a very, very mature basin. And, and as I've said, today, our domestic production achieves about 50% of the total need for oil and gas in, in the UK. So already we're not providing our own needs. I think it's true. I think we have in the region of 283 fields in the in the North Sea. The expectation is that over 150 of those will actually decommission and will stop producing in the course of the, the, the next decade. So what you can see is it's already a very, very mature uh, basin. That rates are declining, uh, I, think, I think, quickly. And if we're not careful, by the end of 2020, uh, 2030, we'll find ourselves where we are importing over 80% of our oil and gas production. So fields like Rosebank and new developments, they are absolutely critical that we're bringing on board additional production, providing the gas, providing the oil that we need to drive our economy. To offset the declines that we're, we're seeing, we're still going to see decline in oil and gas production in the, in the UK, but we need to slow it down. Otherwise, we will truly find ourselves in a position where our energy security is undermined. And then if I could, anything we choose not to produce from Rosebank is effectively oil and gas that we will import from elsewhere. And again, we're importing from countries where, where they don't necessarily have the same commitments to the climate goals that we have here. Uh, we're exporting our jobs and we're leaving the country poorer as a result of it. So, so I think Rosebank and other developments of that kind are absolutely critical. And I, I think we need to make that case louder and stronger because, because without it, we will find ourselves in a position where we're exporting our jobs and importing the oil. If you don't, if you don't mind me saying, on, on the in, in an issue of energy security, what, one of the observations I would like to make is... I'm actually very fortunate that I, as well as being the chief executive at OEUK, I'm also a master's in renewable engineering student at uh, the University of Aberdeen. So a great, a great university, uh, the fourth best in terms of student satisfaction in the UK, just as a shout out for my, uh, for my university. But one of the things that's really interesting uh, being on that course is I am lucky enough to be studying alongside, I think, uh, over 50 overseas students 50 really, really interesting people. And the majority of those 50 people, they come from countries where they do not have the energy security that we have. They do not wake up and turn on their gas boilers because the energy doesn't exist. They cannot run successful businesses because the electricity isn't there 24 hours a day. So I have the pleasure of, of studying alongside 40 really interesting people. 
And when we talk about energy security, they look at me and they think in the UK we're crazy. That we are actually playing Russian roulette with our own energy security because they've seen it for they see it for real. If you get energy security wrong, what it actually actually means. And I, sometimes I do think in the UK, we need to be careful. We are in a very, very privileged position. And sometimes our discussions, I think, need to reflect what's actually really happening in the, in, the, in the wider world and actually just how lucky we are to have our domestic oil and gas production and the reliable energy supplies that we have. So I guess now that we know just how important Rosebank is, how confident are you that we'll see it actually approved? You know, at the day of recording, Ithaca Energy made an announcement that development is still on the desk of Opred, the regulator, and it's still going through that approval process. But are we actually going to see it get that sort of stamp of approval anytime soon or at all? So, so I think there's a number. So I, I think I think the Rosebank partners, I think, uh, will have to speak for them themselves to, to a large degree. The, the, the one thing I would say, I think we have spoken about how important these new developments are. And I think that's, you know, I think that's, that's key. That's critical. I think in the UK, we're doing ourselves a disservice. The uh, projects like that are, it would be investing billions into the local economy. They create billions of pounds worth of value for the, for the bigger economy. I think, I think that is absolutely clear. And actually, we've cre- we're creating an environment in the UK where actually people are reluctant to make that kind of investment. This is exactly what we need. Rose- Rosebank will help us reduce our emissions. Rosebank will help globally reduce emissions because we will use Rosebank instead of using uh, production from, from other fields. And we are creating an environment where we actually make it uncomfortable for people to uh, to, to invest and to do the right thing. So so for all of our fields, we need to make sure there's the right regulatory oversight. So, so operator ensuring that what we're doing is completely consistent with our climate goals, that's a good thing. Um, I think the Committee on Climate Change will provide oversight that the things that we're doing are consistent with our climate goals. That is a good thing. And when those things have been demonstrated, then we need an environment where people want to, to invest. And I, and I think what we have seen recently is lots of turmoil in terms of the fiscal environment. So that means the taxes we pay uh, have become uncertain. I think the taxes we're paying today are, are to, a, to some degree, penal. Um, we're getting opposition. And again, the words from the Labour Party, again, are not supportive. So those things are headwinds that we need to, uh, that we need to address. So, so will we get Rosebank overline? That is, that is not a decision for me. But I do see from my position in OEUK, it is so critical that we get these major engineering projects across the line for all the reasons that we've been discussing on this podcast. And the commitment from myself is I will do everything I can to make the case, to have the engagement, that we create the atmosphere and the environment that such important projects um, get approved. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to pick up on this on the point around the, the current taxation. So, so I think there's been lots of um, news around the energy profits levy. So, so fundamentally, the oil and gas sector today is paying 75% tax on, on any money that we earn. And what that means is actually that is three times more tax than actually any other sector in the, in the UK economy. It's extremely high. The, the sector does realise, though, that we have been through a very difficult time as a country. I think the, the, we shouldn't underestimate the cost of living crisis. These have been unprecedented times. And actually, I do think it's fair that sectors are paying their way. So the, so the oil and gas sector actually is proud to pay its way. I think we've contributed over £20 billion in, in tax in the last year alone. I think that goes a long way to paying for the support that people have needed to, to pay their bills. So the, the sector is, is proud to do that. But what we ask is as oil prices come down, 
as we as we get back to a more normal state of affairs, as we get back to a point where people are not um, having to have those uh, those subsidies, then for us it would make sense when the windfall goes, then the windfall tax should go as well. And and that, that has been a, a, a plea and a request of government and other policymakers for some time now. Is please, as prices get back to normal. Let's have an environment where people truly want to want to invest, and that would, that will be a case that we will continue to push with uh, with both the the UK government and actually all the other policymakers in the in the UK as well. You know, while we're on the topic of uh, windfall tax, it's something that I wanted to speak to you about while we're here. Um, you know, the legislation doesn't have a, a price floor yet. So I'm guessing the question is why haven't haven't we seen that price floor implemented and are you lobbying hard enough? Do the government want to listen to the to the views that you're bringing up? I think I think we have work to do as a sector to engage more. So so we have worked extremely hard for for decades in terms of our engagement, but it's clear we need to do more. I think it's very clear we need to make the case clearer. I think I think we also need to make the case in public. We need the public to understand and support what we're trying to do. And I think if we achieve those things, then we will achieve that price floor, and I think we will achieve that longer term fiscal stability. The longer the, the the attractive fiscal environment that we need for for investment in in oil and gas in in, in the UK. So so actually, in short answer, yeah, I, I think I tell you, I need to do a better job. I need to do a better job because I think our case is extremely good. As I've said, if you invest in domestic oil and gas and you create the right environment, what that does that uh, that improves our energy security. It safeguards our our jobs. It means we import less. So I'll tell you what, the fact that we haven't achieved it, I need to do a better job. And I'm absolutely committed to do that. One of the things we have shared with various policymakers is, is the fact that we see that if we could achieve a, a trigger, uh, effectively a flaw, which means that the windfall tax falls away at the appropriate time, then we see the potential to unlock something in the region of £17 billion worth of investment. That's £17 billion worth of investment into the UK economy. That's our jobs. And what we see with unlocking that investment, that will safeguard um, something in the region of 45,000 jobs up and, down the, up and down the UK. So we think the argument is compelling. Uh, we will continue to make that argument, actually not just with the UK government, but with all other policymakers and with the public. It's really important that we get behind. This is a, a sector which is absolutely committed to dealing with the issues that come with climate change, absolutely uh, committed to providing energy security, absolutely committed to providing good jobs up and down the, up and down the country. So we're going to work hard to deliver on that. And I tell you what, hopefully we're going to hear more and more people coming out and representing how important this sector is. So we're speaking about attracting talent into the sector, um, but you know, at the moment, there seems to be an awful, awful lot of contention within the talent we have within within oil and gas, especially. You know, we've seen wave after wave of strike action, namely with the uh, contracting firms such as Wood, Petrofax, Stork, Billfinger. I, I guess the the question there is, how has the strike action been inf- impacting the oil and gas sector? I think again, one of the things we look for as a as a sector, what, one of the things we look for, the two hundred thousand people who work in the sector i think it's it we, we need to have good relationships you know uh, with the workforce with the management teams etc and so so actually um having strike action is something we absolutely don't want um it's something where again we are all in this together and so working together we think is is fundamental to the success of the sector so the fact that we have strike action i think uh, again is is something that that undermines people's confidence in the sector and people's confidence uh, to invest 
Having said that, I think I think again we, we've we've touched on it during this conversation that uh, we've been through unprecedented times with the cost of living uh, crisis, and I, th- I think it's true to say we're seeing industrial action across the across the UK. So I don't think the oil and gas sector is unique in that. And so what do we need to do about it? I, I tell you what, what we need to do is is what we pride ourselves on is good engagement with the workforce, having a good conversation, ensuring the workforce are being treated appropriately, uh, making sure that we're fair, making sure we're listening to some of the concerns the the that are that are, are being raised, and if it can say, so, I, I do think we're seeing a good element of that now across the uh, across the sector. So I think we had a very good session um, a couple of months ago where we actually recognising that we had industrial action. Uh, uh, we had the, the managing directors from a number of the operators with the employing companies and the unions in for a conversation, actually, about what can we do more together to ensure that this is a great place to uh, to come and work. So we'll, we'll continue to work that because I think that is is really important. We need to listen to some of the workforce's concerns that we hear. So so I think more interaction with the management teams. And, and I think you see a lot of interaction both onshore and offshore, which I think is, is great. I think it's fair to say that having gone through COVID, I think um, that has taken its toll on the workforce so we need to listen to that make sure we're putting the right support uh, structures in in place so yes it, it certainly has an impact uh, certainly not where we would like it to be but we continue i think uh, I, th- I think i see good dialogue between the workforce and uh, uh, and and the employing companies and I'm, I'm i'm confident this is something that we will resolve and i'm confident it is something we'll we will map out into the future. We're looking for very stable industrial relations, and that comes through good engagement, good conversations. We're committed to that, and treating people fairly. We're committed to that uh, that too. Out of the back of that conversations you're having with employers, what are the the outcomes of those conversations? What what are we looking at to make the the sector a more attractive place to work in? There's a the disputes that we have. At the, at the moment so far so fundamentally there there are a variety of different disputes but but generally speaking around um, around paying conditions and so so around those conversations will go on between the employing companies and uh, and the workforce and, and and the unions so we need to get that resolved but then if you look longer term what we what, what do we need to do I think I think one is people should be proud to work in this sector and they should recognize actually they have longevity under all of the climate change scenarios we are still going to be producing oil and gas for a good period of time really important part of the sector so I think I think one of the things is we need to make that clear to the workforce that actually we're doing a really important job and that important job will be here for the for the longer term I think what we also need to do is recognize that there will be an increasing number of jobs if we get this right if we do anchor those jobs in the UK then there is going to be an increasing number of jobs in different sectors and I think things like floating wind is a really great example so the other thing which which I'm I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of Ryan is is working hard to ensure that we are recognizing training standards that are currently in the oil and gas sector are being recognized by the by the wind sector for example to ensure that people don't have to pay twice for training to to get offshore. So I think there's some simple things we need to do in that area. And I think in in, in probably in even a bigger picture is recognizing that the skills that we have are so fundamental to the success of the UK that not only do we need to take care of today's workforce, but we need to be attracting tomorrow's as well. So this is a great place to come and work. You'll be treated fairly. You'll be doing jobs, which I think are truly important to the the country. And, And one of the things we've said on a number of occasions, if you're concerned about climate change, I tell you what, this is the sector to come and work. If you are concerned about this, this is where you come and actually do it rather than talk about it. So so for me, if you want to change the world, come and work in the energy sector because this is where you make it happen rather than talk about making it happen. So I think there's a really compelling argument. I think we've got more work to do in that area 
but we treat people fairly. It's a great place to to uh, to come and work. I think it has longevity. It's exciting because I think uh, we're going to make it easy for people to move between sectors because we see the skills as completely transferable. And truly, you can change the world if you come and work in the in, in the sector. And and come on, come up to Aberdeen. It's a great place to having been here for twenty years. Uh, it's definitely something I have never regretted coming up to Aberdeen. So it's a great place to come and live. Come and work up here as well. It's a it's a fantastic opportunity. And Ryan, and and, and maybe just to broaden it out a little bit, the so I say those things. The workforce, I think, echo uh, similar sentiments. I think we're seeing it from the operators. And actually, what's also great is is working with the unions because they see this as well. I think it, it's great to see. Actually, even this week, we're seeing good support for the sector from a number of the unions. Great to see that. So so yes, we have some short term disputes, but yeah, we have a long term. We are joined up, and it is great to see the unions actually working hand in hand to make sure that that we do deliver a great environment, not just for today, but uh, but the, for the future. And and I think that's all part of we want this to be a great sector and I think it's been said a, a number of times a successful journey to net zero which is what we all want a successful journey to net zero has to be with people and for people people are absolutely central to achieving that net zero journey journey we need to recognize that and make sure again that our actions are following our good words so I guess you just touched on uh, the the skills passport there a little bit with the make- sure that workers don't have to pay twice for their their training and making sure that they can transfer from oil and gas to say offshore wind and then maybe back to oil and gas and maybe even jump into other offshore uh, offshore energies so we're seeing some some blocks and delays in that skills passport that the Scottish government are looking to bring about in partnership with Opito what frustrations do you have with those delays and blocks? I think the, um, so I'm an engineer, so I don't get frustrated. I'll just fix, I try and fix things. So, um, so from what I, what I see is actually, I think, I think everybody wants to do the right thing. Everybody recognizes that we need to make it straightforward and easy for people to move between different sectors. I think, I think there's some really good work going on in the wind sector and with, with the, with the pitos doing some great work in the kind of the oil and gas sector. And so actually no frustration, but for me it is, we just need to bring people together um, I think we're all working to a common goal and I am confident we are going to see that mutual recognition of standards and, and I'm, I'm confident that we will deliver that and and actually what people are seeing is a frustration today that uh, with, uh, with a good bit of pragmatism and a bit of engineering common sense I think we're going to get to a, a good place and I, I think everybody's aligned on that so so I'm not frustrated I think uh, there's just a little bit of work to get it over the line. So I feel like we've touched on an awful lot today um, skills passport, the strike action, Rose Bank, and you know uh, the late the situation with Labour at the moment. Is there anything else you'd like to address with the the Energy Voice readership while we've got you here on the Energy Voice Out Loud podcast? Actually, Ryan, I'm. I'm not sure there's there's much more I would add. I think we've had a, a really good conversation. If I could, though, the, the message I would leave you with is this energy transition is really important. I think it is a fabulous opportunity, actually, for the for the UK. I think it's a fabulous opportunity for, for Scotland and, and the North East. Part of what we've touched on today, though, I think, is if we are not careful, we're going to get this wrong. And part of my job, actually, part of all our jobs is we mustn't get this wrong. It's uh, we, We've got to get this right. We've got to get this right so we deliver 
on our climate goals, but actually we do that in a way where it's good for people, where we do anchor jobs up and down the up and down the UK. We do anchor jobs here in Scotland that we do start seeing actually more being manufactured as part of the UK's transition. So we're seeing more and more of the energy transition being fabricated, built, installed and run from the UK. So I think those goals are all are all really clear. Conversations today, like today for me, are really important because the more we work together, the more we discuss, the more we understand, the more we recognize those common goals and the more we recognize how working together is going to help us deliver on actually the things I think we, we all want. So very much appreciate the opportunity for a conversation and I look forward to future engagements um, as we move forward. Well, thank you very much to David Whitehouse for joining us on Energy Voice Out Loud and thank you very much for listening. If you want to remain a part of the global energy conversation, stay tuned to Energy Voice on your podcast platform of choice. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.